Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 5, verse 24. Please stand when you get that. John 5, verse 24. Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. and has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Lord, bless your word today. I pray, Father, that you would prepare hearts, and Lord, that it would go forth and bear abundant fruit in everyone who is represented here today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Philip Keller tells a story about a minister who was visiting Italy. When he was there, he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before who was an unbeliever. He was completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it too. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave. So he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. He had insignias put all over the slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. But apparently when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split the slab and it was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, If an acorn, which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that multitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? I love that. The splintered remnants of the stone slab on either side and the giant oak tree itself are reminders that from generation to generation, that God will work out His grace. And no matter how much anyone tries to deny Him, He will accomplish whatever His goodwill is. That should give all of us comfort this morning. We should let the power of the resurrection turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. If your temper is a problem, Let God turn it into patience. 
If you are focused on worldly things and God is getting left out, let God revive your devotion to what it once was and make it even better than it was before. If you have doubt, dare to let God turn that into faith, as in the words of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. If you are focused on self, let God show you the others that are out there and the way that he wants you to work with them as part of his band of disciples. If you love this world, let him show you a glimpse of another world where righteousness, holiness, and love are the order of the day. It's so simple, really. It is really saying yes to God, and he takes care of the rest. The power of the resurrection does not take power away from us. It gives us power we never thought we would have. That's part of what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 24 with me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Not long before his death from an overdose of cocaine and morphine, Saturday night comedian Chris Farley stated, There's only one who's in control. He'll take me when he wants me. I don't want to know about it. It's none of my business. I just hope he'll forgive my sins. When I read that, I thought, despite being rich and famous, Farley was obviously unhappy. He tried to fill the void with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But like so many others who like him, either died by accidental drug overdose or purposeful suicide, his quote raises a question for us this morning. Concerning the day of his death, he said it was none of his business and he didn't even want to think about it. But here's the sad thing. Jesus is telling us in verse 24 that we can know for certain that we have eternal life. How? By simply hearing his word and believing in God who sent his son. Jesus says that if we do that, most assuredly we will have everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. So you're telling me that if I just believe the gospel, that's all I have to do to receive everlasting life. That's exactly what I'm saying. But what about works? Doesn't the Bible also teach that faith without works is dead? Yes, it most certainly does. But we have to be careful that we put those things in the correct order. In regards to salvation, it's always faith followed by works and not works followed by faith. Faith is the root and works are the fruit. In other words, it's from saving faith 
the good works will follow. Let me give you an idea of what that looks like in a human life. True spirituality manifests itself in certain dominant desires. First is the desire to be holy rather than happy. That means a man may be considered spiritual when he wants to see the honor of God advance through his life. Even if it means he himself must suffer temporary dishonor or loss. A Christian is spiritual when he sees everything from God's viewpoint. Another desire of the spiritual man or woman is to die right rather than to live wrong. The spiritual man habitually makes eternity judgments instead of time judgments. Okay? But how do I know how to habitually make eternity judgments? The only way to be completely sure is by filtering our judgment through the grid of Scripture. And the only way we can do that is by having a working knowledge of the Bible. You don't even have to know the Hebrew and the Greek, but you should know it well enough that it becomes the guide to your behavior and your desires. Not only that, the desire to do that is an internal proof that we truly do have eternal life. Now, some have imagined that this life is not everlasting. Some have argued that it is not eternal. But if that can be so, then words have no significance and the word of God is meaningless. If eternal life can be lost, it is not eternal. If it can be taken from us, it is not eternal. Let me ask you a question. Are the traits of God changeable? Certainly not. Then his gifts cannot be withdrawn. The Bible says God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. If God has given us ten years of life, then that life cannot be lost before the end of those ten years. If he has promised us 1,000 years of life, then that life cannot be lost before the end of 1,000 years. In the same way, if he has given us eternal life, then that life is eternal life. We can be certain that it will lead straight on to the moment of our own physical resurrection and beyond. Now I realize there are good and godly people who disagree with me on this point. And they believe that a true convert can lose their salvation. And I used to be part of that group. Actually, I changed my viewpoint in this very room years ago when I taught us the book of Romans back in 2015. But this is not a salvation doctrine. You don't have to believe in eternal security to be saved. It's kind of like my view of the rapture. You don't have to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But if I'm right, and I think I am, 
I'm going to make fun of you the whole trip up, all the way to glory as we ascend through the air. In all seriousness, let me just finish by saying good Christians have often disagreed over whether true believers can or cannot forsake their salvation. Perhaps we should compare our situation to riding in the back of a pickup truck. All true believers are on board. Some Christians believe the tailgate is closed and locked. Others believe it is left open. In either case, the logical thing to do is not to see how daring we can be by leaning out the back, but to ride as close to the cab as possible. Look at verse 25 with me. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus' phrasing in verse 25 is interesting because the phrase, will hear, takes on a double meaning. He is saying that the dead, that is, all of humanity that has died, will one day hear the voice of the Son of God. But only those who hear will receive life. The first hearing is literal. That's the, the mere exposure to the sound of his voice. The second hearing has to do with comprehending the message and believing it. The irony, of course, is that dead people cannot hear anything. His statement has both a present and a future aspect. He will summon the dead to judgment on the final day. However, the dead can receive life now. I wonder this morning, have you heard his voice? Did you know that in Palestine today, it is still possible to witness a scene that Jesus almost certainly saw 2,000 years ago? It is that of Bedouin shepherds bringing their flocks home from the various pastures where they have grazed during the day. Often those flocks will end up at that same watering hole around dusk. This causes them to get all mixed up together as several small flocks turns into just a convention of thirsty sheep. The shepherds do not worry about the mix-up, however. When it is time to go home, each one issues his or her own distinctive call by a special trill or whistle or a particular tune on a reed pipe, and that shepherd's sheep will withdraw from the crowd and follow their shepherd home. They know whom they belong to. They know their shepherd's voice, and it is the only one they will follow. If you haven't heard his voice this morning, and if you are one of his sheep, I pray you come to know that voice in a more intimate and powerful way. And I include myself in that prayer. Verse 26, please. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is a Son of Man. Jesus then tells them that just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son the same ability. Or to put it another way, 
God has always been and is the uncreated creator. I'm going to give you a fancy theological word you can impress your friends with. The doctrine of God always existing is known as aseity. Webster defines aseity as the quality or state of being self-derived or self-originated, specifically the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. Think of it this way. God has always existed. God is not created. He is eternal. He cannot do anything if he did not exist. Therefore, it is impossible for God to create himself. If God is self-existent and depends on nothing else for his being, then he is necessarily without cause and eternal. Since God always was, that means no other force or purpose has designed him. Now, of course, the skeptic's main argument is, okay, who made God then? Nobody. And that's the point. There has to be a first cause that started everything outside of that realm. This has also been called the prime mover. And furthermore, I can turn that exact same argument back on the atheist and ask him, all right, what caused the Big Bang? If the Big Bang is true, then there had to be a power or a force outside of it to cause it. Sometimes they will say things like, an alien race caused the Big Bang. But all that does is kick the can down the street. Now you have to explain, okay, where did the aliens come from? Do you see what I'm getting at? For Christian and atheist alike, we both have to have faith in what started the universe and by extension, everything else. And I think, if a person is being intellectually honest, there is far more evidence through the fine-tuning of the universe and other things that point to a creator instead of an explosion that by chance created all we see. I do believe in the Big Bang, by the way. I believe God said it, and bang, there it was. <laughs> Verse 27 reminds us of something we touched on last week, and that is that God has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment. Jesus validated his qualification to judge all of humanity because he is both the Son of God who can give life and the Son of Man who experienced life as a human, yet without sin. Let this thought grip your mind. God has appointed a day in which all men and women who have ever lived will be brought before him and judged. And what that means is, death is not the end. Therefore, you and I, whoever we may be, must stand before him. Will our judgment be unto life because of our relationship to Jesus Christ? Or will our judgment be unto condemnation? Will the judgment unite us to God? Or be the means of our separation from him 
forever. William Barclay says quite accurately, the point is not, am I as good as my neighbor? The point is, am I as good as God? The point is not, is my scholarship and is my piety greater than that of other people whom I could name? The point is, what do I look like to God? He finishes by saying, so long as we judge ourselves by human comparisons, there is plenty of room for self-satisfaction. And self-satisfaction kills faith, for faith is born of the sense of need. Barclay finishes with this point. But when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ and through him with God, we are humble to the dust. And then faith is born, for there is nothing left to do but to trust in the mercy of God. What was Barclay telling us? It is only when we compare ourselves with God that we realize the need for a work of redemption accomplished by a Savior who comes from God to lift us up to himself. I truly hope we all understand that this morning because there is no other way. There is no plan B. It is simply Jesus or judgment. I pray we all choose the Savior. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There is a difference between temporary and permanent. Temporary refers to something that can be changed. Permanent refers to something that cannot be changed. Am I brilliant or what? But this is important for understanding our present subject. For the subject is God's judgment. And the central point is that God's judgment will establish a permanent distinction between men. Some entering into the fullness of life and some into what the Bible calls death or damnation. In describing the fate of humankind in verses 28 and 29, Jesus explained the two possible destinies, life, which is eternal life, or judgment. Now taken by itself, this statement would appear to declare that one's eternal destiny is determined solely by his or her deeds. That is to say, bad deeds lead to hell, while one can enjoy heaven as a result of good deeds. But that is a wrong interpretation, and this is why. Now, to be sure, theoretically, a person can go to trial before God the judge, and if he or she is found to be morally perfect, can enter heaven. In a practical sense, however, no one is morally perfect. Therefore, to face judgment is to face condemnation. Consequently, Jesus uses the two ideas interchangeably, as in judgment is condemnation. His point is we need to avoid judgment altogether through belief in the gospel. Why? Because left to ourselves, all of us will gravitate to the lust of the flesh by sinning. 
The word peccable means capable of sinning. Jesus alone is impeccable. That means he's without sin. Now, Adam was peccable, as was proven by the Garden of Eden. Now, you and I, like Adam, can choose either to sin or not to sin. That means we can be impeccable for, I don't know, minutes at a time. We can live in a state of impeccable-ishness. That's probably not a word. But no one in here or on earth today or throughout human history can stand before God solely on the merits of good behavior. Now, not to beat a dead horse, of course works are important and are a proof that we truly do have saving faith. And we need to see this aspect of Christ's teaching too and that the works that Christians do also bear witness to Jesus. A.W. Pink, one of the great commentators on the book of John, has written, If our works are dead works, wood, hay, and stubble, which shall be burned up in the coming day, that proves we are carnal, walking after the flesh, and such a witness will dishonor and grieve him whose name we bear. But if we abound in good works, that will show that we are walking after the Spirit. And our fellow believers, seeing our good works, will glorify our Father which is in heaven. If you will allow me a quick trip down the rabbit trail, I wonder how differently would the world view Christians if we focused on our own failings as much as we do on societies. As I read the New Testament, I am struck by how little attention it gives to the faults of the surrounding culture. Jesus and Paul say nothing about violent gladiator games or infanticide, both common practices among the Romans. However, in a telling passage, the Apostle Paul responds fiercely to a report of incest in the Corinthian church. He urges strong action against those involved and quickly clarifies, not at all meaning the people of the world. Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Am I saying that we should not engage our culture? Of course not. What I'm saying is we should be far more concerned about our own personal lives. Anyway, I threw that in for free. Just something to think about. These verses present three doctrines. First, death is not the end of existence. Secondly, there are two forms of existence beyond the grave. One good and one terrible. And thirdly, the particular kind of existence to be entered into depends upon the individual's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The obvious conclusion is that each person ought to examine himself in regards to that relationship. The first point of Christ's teaching is that physical death is not the end of existence. It was not the end either for himself or for others. Quite clearly, he expected to die. He said 
that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. He told his disciples that he was going to go up to Jerusalem where he would be arrested, beaten, and then killed because of the hatred of the religious leaders towards him. All this happened. Yet, Jesus also spoke of the fact that he would rise again after three days and return to his disciples. We see from this text that Jesus expected others, both good and evil persons, to live on. It is therefore obvious that according to Jesus, the grave is not the end for anyone. The saved are given resurrection bodies to endure the glories of heaven, while the lost are given resurrection bodies to endure the agonies of hell. Of course, people cringe at this. How could a good God create such a hell for those who reject him? I have no problem with this. Just don't go there then. He sent his only son to provide a way out. All we have to do is accept that gift. Also keep in mind that resurrection is not reconstruction. It does not imply that God puts the pieces back together again. The resurrection body is a new body, a glorified body, suited for the heavenly environment. It's the kind of body where you can eat hot fudge sundaes all day, every day, and still lose weight. It's going to be fabulous. Death is not the end of the believer, nor will he live in heaven as a disembodied spirit. God says the whole person, and that includes the body. But here's the sobering truth. Both groups of people will live eternally. And that's the way the text ends. There is a plea on his behalf to escape the wrath of God. This text exposes so many areas in the arena of what people think about the afterlife. False doctrines like universalism that teaches that everybody created goes to heaven. Or that you can come to God any way that you choose as long as you are sincere. It exposes annihilationism that teaches that at death you cease to exist in any realm. It also contradicts purgatory that teaches that on the other side of death, that there is a purging that will allow you to enter heaven. There are no second chances after death. It eliminates the doctrine you can be saved by just being a decent person and doing good works. And finally, the idea of a dead faith, which is, you did a bunch of Christian religious things, but you were never truly converted by the Spirit of God. As we wrap up, not only is choosing Christ the best choice for eternity, choosing Him is the best way to live a joyful life full of purpose even now while we walk this earth. A few years ago in California, the story broke about a little six-year-old boy. He would go to church, but the church leaders noticed there was something not quite right about the little boy's behavior. They asked him about his parents, and he said he was being raised by his aunt. They asked him where he lived, and the youngster told them, I live in a box. 
They asked him if he slept there, to which he replied, I live there. Do you eat there? Yeah. When do you get out? The boy replied, when I go to the bathroom and when I go to church. Alarmed, but unsure if he was lying, some of the leaders went to his house and sure enough found the boy was living inside of a coffin. His mother had died at birth and his aunt thought he was brain damaged and so she kept him in a coffin and would even put the lid on it to keep him there. But do you know why he never complained? Because his aunt told him that all little boys and girls lived in boxes. And so he thought it was normal. Now you hear that story and you think, how tragically awful. But even more tragic is, there are some people who if I ask them, why should God one day let you into his heaven? They wouldn't have a clue. Because they are living their lives in a coffin. And the only reason they think it's normal is because they think that everyone else lives their lives in a coffin in the doubt of fear and death. But they're wrong. The Christian does not live his or her life in a coffin. Because death has been defeated, we can live in the hope of the resurrection. As I've often said, as believers, we are not in the land of the living heading to the land of the dying. No, we are in the land of the dying heading to the land of the living. And Father, we thank you for that. I pray that your word would bear fruit this morning, Lord. If anyone does not know you, I pray today would be the day they would move from judgment into righteousness. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, who may need to be sanctified, I pray you'd make the teaching of your son even more attractive to us. Let us leave behind the things of the world. And Father, if there are people here just need encouragement, whose hands hang down, I pray you would encourage them. We thank you that you are the God that can do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.